0: This is a recording made in the Chapel of the Open Cook, and it is number 7 of the series entitled, "Ye See Your Calling. This evening it will be considering the dispensation of the mystery and its calling. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. Those of you who are listening to this tape recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two and read the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. we have read together this opening chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians and we cannot help but be struck by the fact that it introduces quite a number of aspects of truth that you will not find anywhere else. Nowhere else do you read of all spiritual blessings. Nowhere else do you read of any company than this who are related to heavenly places where Christ sits at the right hand of God. But the chapter that makes the definite claim, to which we might just give a passing glimpse, is chapter 3, the first 13 verses. Let's just give that a skim, as it were, to put the thing in its place, and then we'll have to concentrate our attention, particularly on the references to calling, in this dispensation of the mystery. It starts off by a claim made by the Apostle as the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles. He says, for this cause. But he doesn't go further. He says in the next verse, oh dear, uh, I've made a claim. Uh, Perhaps you don't understand the claim, so i will better explain to you. So he says, I'm uh, taking for granted that you've heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which is given me to you, Lord. How that by revelation, not by my seeking or by my searching, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery. Well, you get the, the, the revised version, you get a change of word in verse nine. And to make all men see, not what is the fellowship, That's a very glorious thought. But the revised text reads, to make all men see what is the dispensation. Now, of course, in English, there's no comparison between the two words in their spelling. Uh, But if you've ever written out chapter after chapter of a book like the Bible, you'd be surprised how many mistakes you make, however careful you are. And it's quite easy to see that perhaps the one who was writing this copy, he put down koinonia, K-O-I, instead of oikonovia. That's the difference between fellowship and dispensation. Don't think there's any trifling over the word of God over this. To make all men see what is the dispensation of the mystery which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God who created all things by Jesus Christ. And then he comes back After verse 13, Wherefore, I desire that ye faint not at my tribulations for you. This is balancing for this cause. I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you. These tribulations for you, which is your glory, for which cause? Back again for this cause. So it's taken that long parenthesis of 13 verses to tell you what he was going to say. But aren't we glad he stopped himself and said, Oh, Wait a minute, i will better explain. Of course, there are some passages where we wish he stopped himself again. But there are some that God needs us to have a look at, you see. There's one that's a very tantalising one in Hebrews about the cherubim, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Oh dear, we almost wish he had. But God said no. God said no. Leave a few things in the word of God to exercise the minds and hearts of my people. So that they may not come to the conclusion, we know everything. But when you've got there, instead of being a blessed people, you're being sanctified. So here we are. Now I think for the rest of our time, we shall be occupied with the emphasis upon the word calling in these prison epistles. You see, he's a prisoner. And Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Second Timothy are all marked with the word prison and they combine together to give us a complete four-square presentation of this high and wonderful calling. And so, we start looking at chapter 1 of this epistle to the Ephesians. As we read this chapter together just now, you may have noticed that the first half The Apostle is making a revelation. He takes you back before the foundation of the world. He takes you up to heavenly places where Christ sits. And then he stops and says, well now, it's one thing to have a revelation of truth given to you. It's another thing for you to enter into it. So he says, I'm going to cease talking to you and I'm going to pray for you. And his prayer is this. He starts in verse um, 15, if you will follow with me for a moment. Verse 15. Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, and love unto all the saints, ceased not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Now those of you who are acquainted with the Apostle Paul's ministry, This may have already made you think, ah, how many times does he say, faith, hope, love? Oh, he says it many times. So he says, I'm glad to have recognised your faith. I'm glad to see your love. But he says, there's one thing that wants a little bit more help. So the next verse says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. So you see, the Bible has been so written that it tells you some things and then it says now, go on, make it your own. Here the apostle doesn't tell you what is the hope of your calling. He's leaving you now to piece together other parts of Scripture so that you may be exercised and grow. You see, if you have a little baby and you're so concerned about that it doesn't fall on its bottom every time, the poor little mite will never walk. That won't do it any harm. It hasn't got far to go. And nature has made a nice cushion for it to bounce on. And let it get up and scramble again and fall over. So, we're thankful for the revelation that teaches us and we're all so thankful that God steps back and says, now pursue it. Now, here we have then a prayer. What is there necessary if we would understand what is the hope of our calling? Well, he says you want a wise and revealing spirit. Well, you can't make that for yourself. But you can ask God to give it to you. The eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Now then, you're not asking for that. That is assumption. He says, of course, I'm assuming that you've got your eyes opened. Because if you had not you're listening to me and you say, what on earth is he talking about? So supposing a blind man would say to you, what are you carrying on about saying, what a wonderful colour that picture is? He says, I don't see it. And would you say, well, because he doesn't see it, perhaps it's not there. If you say to me well I don't see it that doesn't prove it isn't there friends it may prove you haven't got your eyes open mightn't it? And if you feel in that position don't be upset. Be thankful somebody has brought you up with a jerk and go back and read John the ninth chapter when a man who was born blind confessed that he didn't know anything about theology when the doctors of the law began to bombard him that he says one thing I know whereas I was blind Now I see. And you could almost hear him saying, take it out of that. That's a good start. So he says, now, what you must have is the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's the elementary fact of salvation. Christ is your Redeemer, your Saviour. Now, he says, assuming that, that he may give unto you a wise and revealing spirit, the word knowledge, is also translated in quite a number of passages, at knowledge. Perhaps you would turn with me to Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. That's the next epistle but one. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Here we have this word, which we've got here as knowledge, but here you'll find it is translated at knowledge. Verse 2, that their hearts might be comforted, be knit together in love. Again, you see, it's not merely brain work and head work, this is heart work and unity. Unto all the riches of the full assurance of understanding to the acknowledgement of the mystery. Same word. And if you'd like to have another passage to look at your leisure, there is 2 Timothy 2.25 and Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Many passages are translated acknowledgement, and I don't know whether you know in the Old English that it was all one and the same word. You know the DM which is saying in church service, we acknowledge thee to be the Lord. Well, the man who wrote that didn't say that. In the Old English he said, we knowledge thee to be the Lord, but well, we couldn't say that now, that's not, we've dropped that out. But don't you see the truth behind it? Knowledge isn't the accumulation of material, it's what you do with it that makes it knowledge. You may have upstairs in that attic the whole Encyclopedia Britannica, but that's not knowledge. You've got to bring them downstairs and look at the article and read it and ponder it and then it becomes knowledge. That's acknowledging it, recognising it. Otherwise You'd have to say with Hamlet, when he was pretending to be mad, they say, what are you reading? He says, words, words, words. That's what some people do with a book. But the words are there to lead you to the word himself, and the enlightenment is to have an eye open to see that he fills it with his glory. Well, here we are. This is leading up to this question of their calling. Our subject, you see, this evening and for many of these evenings has been the question, you see your calling, and we're considering the special calling of this company. So here we have in verse 18, that you may know, that you may know. You see, acknowledgement, if that's the way you should translate verse 17, is one of the reasons why some people never go any further. Some people come so far with you, And then they suddenly wake up to the fact that if they believe that, they'll be turned out of their church. Or their husband won't speak to them. Or anything else might happen. And so, unless you acknowledge what God gives you, you'll stop yourself. The scripture says, then shall we know, if we follow on to know the Lord. But if once God reveals a truth to you, and you shut your eyes to it, it may be the beginning of a blindness and a hardening that you'll never get over. It's a solemn moment. So he says, that you may know what is the hope of his calling. And this preface is another set of knowledge. When once you know his calling and its hope, you'll understand you've got an inheritance. Look at the next part of the verse and an inheritance which is described as riches of glory of this inheritance, and as a power beyond your dreams awaiting you, And oh, what is the exceeding greatness of his power to us all who believe, the very power that was wrought in Christ when he was raised from the dead. So you see, this is an important feature in our Christian growth. Now you notice it says, his calling. In the doctrine, the calling comes from him. His calling. But if it never becomes your calling, it's fallen on deaf ears, hasn't it? So when we come to the practice, of course you know what we're going to do now, don't you? Chapter 4. It's still the prisoner, but not the prisoner of Jesus Christ anymore. Oh no. Same person, but different title. He's now the prisoner of the Lord. And when you speak of the Lord, as our Saviour said, you call me Master and Lord. Well, you must do with the things that I tell you if that's the case. This is practice. I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk. See, walk is practice. It assumes you have life. And you're beginning to realize your responsibilities. That you walk worthy. And the word worthy, as we've seen many times before, axios, is borrowed from a pair of scales that puts in one side the blessings that God has given you and puts in the other side your corresponding thankfulness in a consistent walk. But how many of us have got the pair of scales perfectly horizontal? I don't know anybody. I'm not rude because I'm including myself. But it's a gold in front of you, isn't it? That the blessings that God has given you should have some correspondence with a walk that we now follow down here. So he says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation. Now, of course, you know the word vocation is the word calling. It's an alternative rendering. So here we have a calling. But in verse um, 4, he calls it the hope of your calling. There is one body, one spirit, even as you're called in one hope of your calling. As I said earlier, in chapter 1, it's his calling. That's the doctrine. In chapter 4, it's your calling, because it's reached you, and you've responded. There's the calling, chapters 1, 2, and 3. And then the Bibles of every Christian that possesses a Bible. But I wonder how many percent of those who've got that Bible can say, and I've responded to it. I've realised it's true. I understand its differences from the other callings. So if you do, you've now got his calling and your calling. Shall we turn to the next epistle? That is Philippians. He says here, verse 10, that I may know him and not that I be told the history of the resurrection but that I may know its power. It's one thing to believe that Christ was raised from the dead. It's another thing to realise that that is the power that worketh in us. That's an irresistible power if there is one in God's creation. That I may know him the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being made conformable unto his death. What are you after, Paul? If by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Now that's a very strange passage. First of all, you'll find the very words if by any means I might attain or we might attain in the record of the shipwreck that is given in the last chapters of the Acts of the Apostles. They'd reached a port that was a barren spot, and they hoped, they took a risk, if by any means they might attain unto a port that was a bit better than wintry but instead of that, they were a wreck. And the Apostle Paul was in that ship, and he wrote these words. So it means to say he's up against something now which he might not reach. But you say he couldn't possibly have had any doubts that he would be raised from the dead, For it's a very part of the gift of God. Oh yes. But the moment you get a puzzle like that, you want to be sure of the word. And here we have the little word ek, which means out of, coming into play. This is not resurrection, this is an out resurrection, out from among the dead. This is peculiar. Always oh, said, I'm saved all right. But what I have in mind now is the prize. The prize of this calling. Now a prize in the scripture is something you can win or lose. They all run in a race, but one receiveth the prize, said the apostle. So he said with regard to himself, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect. But I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended To apprehend means to lay hold of something. Later on, he wrote another epistle, just before he died. And he says, I have finished my course. Here he says, I'm running, so we'll let him go on. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and this man had already written about these people in the wilderness, who, when they left Egypt, left their heart did it. And when they came out into the wilderness they said, We remember the fish and the onions and the garlic and the cucumbers that we did eat e- in Egypt freely. Distance led enchantment to the view, or whatever you could say about it, or the smell, I don't know what. The remembrance. You see, he says, If you're going to run this race and start looking back, you'll lose. So he says, one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press. Now our version says toward the mark. But if you've got it in front of you, the original, according to a mark, because there was a white line, just as you've got in the middle of the roads here, which you must not step over if you do, you're disqualified. Keep the rules, he said. No man is crowned except he strive lawfully. So according to the mark, I press toward the goal for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Now nobody has to press to a goal for the hope. The hope is yours by redemption. It's yours if you're a saved person. You can't avoid it if you want to. But the prize is the added bit that God gives so that it's written in the scriptures, even a cup of cold water given in his name will be remembered by him. We're not doing it just to get the remembrance. But nevertheless, the epistle to the Hebrews, which has to do with running the race set before them, despising the shame just like Christ, it says that well, those that come to God in that character must believe not only that he is, but he is a rewarder of them to diligently seek it. Well, now, I mustn't spend too much time on this one aspect, but it's an aspect that sometimes is so mixed with the basic facts that we do well to realise it's something over and above. Now, we turn the page to Colossians, and we find the calling mentioned in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse uh, 15. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also ye are called in one body, and be ye thankful. Now this is in the midst of an exhortation. You go right back to chapter 3, verse 1. Now he says, If what I've said is true of you, if ye then be risen with Christ, for what sort of person should you be? If you say, all your treasure is in heaven, and you're grubbing about here like the man with a muckrake in Bunyan, you mustn't expect people to believe you. Where a man's heart is, there's his treasure. Or if I have misquoted it, we'll put it the other way around, where a man's treasure is, there his heart is. Take it which way you like, it comes from the same truth. So if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth, on the right hand of God, because you're told in the original passage we had before us that you're blessed with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places, in Christ. And the same chapter tells you that these heavenly places is where Christ sits, far above all principality and power and dominion and might. Fancy that. Inheritance is yours. And you're grubbing about here like the man of the muckrake and you fail to see the angel over your head, he says. So, Set your affection not merely affection. The word has given us our word phrenology. I don't mean to say you've got to have bumps on your head and start thinking things about it, but it means you're bent. So that if people know you they say, Oh, he's got he's got Christianity on the brain. He's got heavenly places on his mind so good thing too. For the more that occupies your thoughts the more will you be able to say I seek my mercy to walk worthy of this calling. Set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth, for ye died. It's a pity to read our version for ye are dead. That's absolute. Ye died when Christ died. You were reckoned to die with him. When he was raised, you were reckoned to have been raised with him. And your life is hid with Christ in God. Can you think of a safer place in the only universe for that precious life which God has given you now? What can you do with it to preserve it? You can't do anything. But here it is. When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, now this is the word which gives us the word to characterize the hope of this calling you do know there are three distinctive words in the New Testament for the second coming of Christ. There is the parathia, his personal presence, which is particularly concerned with Matthew 24 and parallel passages. There is the apocalypsis, which is a revelation, and that again has to do particularly with kingdom teaching. But this particular word, the epiphania, or as we put it, the epiphany, is the Word which characterises the hope of this company. Now it looks as though the second coming of Christ falls into three stages. He's there at the right hand of God, henceforth expecting. So the first move in the second coming must be there, mustn't it? And when he stands up and is manifested in glory, this church will be manifested with him. And then somebody says, well, how are we going to get there? Fancy asking me. I know no more than the man in the moon, if there is one. But I've already read in this epistle to the Colossians that we give thanks unto God who has made us meet all sufficient for the inheritance of the saints in life. And that doesn't merely give you an inheritance in glory, but it gives you a first-class ticket to get there, all expenses paid, and everything you need waiting for you. You're going to be presented in that holy presence, without spot, without wrinkle, or any such thing. So he says here. And when Christ, who is our life, should be made manifest, then shall ye also be made manifest. Not in the air, not in the New Jerusalem, not on the earth, but in glory, where he is. Then He descends from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and another company of God's people, who belong to another calling, all redeemed by the same Christ, but having another inheritance, they meet him in the air. So shall they forever be with the Lord. And then his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, and the earth comes under his beneficent sway. Right hand of God, in the air, on the earth. Now even you can't be in three places at once, friends. I know some people, if you say to them, where will you go when you die? They say, oh, I'm going to heaven. And you believe the Sermon on the Mount is for you? Oh, yes. So I read in the Sermon on the Mount, the meat should inherit the earth. And the Sermon on the Mount is for you, and you're going to heaven. Whether well, you're coming or going or what, you see, you mustn't mix these things. They are as distinct as anything in the Scriptures, and there are three Companies who have what is called the adoption or the firstborn's position. Israel on the earth, Romans 9. The company of Jew and Gentile that are to do with the meeting the Lord in the air and connected with the Jerusalem which is above Galatians. And then the epistle to the Ephesians chapter 1 where we have a new company altogether at the right hand. Firstborn on the earth, firstborn in the New Jerusalem, the church and the firstborn who are written in heaven, it says, and the firstborn at the right hand. And you can't be those three friends, whatever you do. It's a marvel that we belong to any one of them, but that's grace. So now we come to this passage where he's leading up to this. He says in verse 12, Put on, therefore, as the, as the elect of God, put on something to manifest that you belong to this, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another. What well, it looks as though you're going to have a bit of a bother. Ah, friends, even though you're fellow members of one body, would you believe it? Would you believe it? I am not absolutely perfect yet. Does that surprise you? Well, I know some folks here that think otherwise, and I think otherwise of them. So it says, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, if any man ever quarreled against any, so they may have a quarrel, even though they're believers in Christ. Oh yes, they're down here still friends. And the old man sometimes has a dig and a go. Yes. Even as Christ forgave you. You see, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things put on love, not charity, that's lost its meaning, which is the bond of perfectness. Ephesians says, the bond of peace. But Paul who wrote these words was a Hebrew. And he knew the word shalom, which is translated peace, is the word that means perfect. You see, peace in the Bible doesn't mean to say that two armies have blown themselves so much to bits and exhausted all their money that they say, we're now at peace. That's not peace. For they'll be at it again when they can. Peace is to pay the price, to give satisfaction, to make amends. They're all the words translated, translating the word shalom. So he said the bond of peace in one epistle, he says the bond of perfectness in the other, I and mean he exactly the same thing. The fruit of righteousness shall be peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace. You can't have it any other way. There must be satisfaction. So he says, and let the peace, oh, here it comes in the very next verse, and let the peace of God rule. Now that word rule means to act as an umpire. Who oh, is isn't it good to know that you can have an infallible rule? Not leaning to you, not leaning to the other side. But always deciding in the line with the will of God. And let the peace of God act as the umpire in your hearts. Oh, I'm ever so thankful that when I was a bit riled over a letter I received from a brother in Christ, I wrote the answer back and dropped it in the waste paper basket and never sent it by post. Because that brother died afterwards. Should not add it on my conscience to think that I've done that. I commend it to you, friends. If you must explode and get it off your chest, write it, then drop it in the waste paper basket. But let the peace of God act the umpire and decide. What a difference it would make to us all, wouldn't it? And so he says here let the peace of God act the umpire in your hearts. To the which also ye are called. This is the very essence of our calling. This is the way in which we express this calling to which you are called in one body. In one body. So this calling, you see, is not merely a cipher. It's a reality. And it should be expressed in these terms. Well, now, there's one more passage to turn to before we bring this reading to a close. 2 Timothy, chapter 1. Where again we have a reference to the calling. <clears throat> we'll start our reading at verse 8 of chapter 1. Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor be his prisoner. Oh, he's a prisoner again. These prison epistles, you see, have got a grouping, they belong to a company. But be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel, according to the power of God, who hath saved us and called us. You remember Romans? Who we did predestinate, then he also called. Who we called, then he justified. Who we justified, ultimately, he glorifies. Calling is a part of the great work of redemption. So he says here, who hath saved us, and called us, and he says, with a holy calling, Philippians says it's a high calling and the other epistles speak of the hope of his calling and working out your calling. A holy calling. And this goes on to expand. Not according to our works. You can't earn salvation whatever you do. It's almost certainty that if you ask a little child what they've got to do to go to heaven, they say be good. That seems to be in the heart of every one of us. But the scripture says there is none that doeth good. No, not one. It's because we can't do good that we need a saviour. So he says, not of works. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus, now our version says, before the world began. Well, the word world is already found in Ephesians, before the foundation of the world, and there we have the word cosmos, which should be world. But this is strictly speaking about times of ages. But inasmuch as the same man writing about the same calling, it says where you want to know where the ages start in the Bible, it starts in between Genesis 1 verse 1 and verse 2. So that's good, let's put that change. But he says, I'm concerned with now, not only with past, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ. So there was an appearing when he came here, and there will be appearing when he comes again. The appearing of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death, and hath brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. As you come to the end of Paul's ministry, life begins to be stressed very much when he's getting near to the end of his life, it's a very sweet thing with him to say, as he, he says in Titus, the next epistle, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. Same thought, you eat life. Or turn back a page or two, to the first epistle to Timothy, and you'll see immortality is there. Verse 17 of chapter 1. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only wise God. Now turn to chapter 6. Verse 15, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, king of kings and lord of lords. Well, it's the title of Christ. And it speaks about the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ in verse 14 who only hath immortality. Only hath immortality. Nobody else has immortality but Christ. Would you say, I've got an immortal soul? Is that so? I think the word soul occurs, what, 400 or 500 times in the Bible? Supposing I'm wrong, say 300. Never once does it say, an immortal soul. It says, the soul that's in it, it shall die immortality is the gift of God. And 1 Corinthians 15 says it's put on at resurrection. So he says here, who only hath immortality, dwelling in light which no man can approach unto, whom no man hath seen nor can see. So that balances unto the king, eternal, invisible. The one concerning God in the abstract sense, the other concerning Christ in his own person. Well, we've tried to give a little idea as to the way in which this calling, its recognition, its acknowledgement, and its association with the first phase of the second coming, which must take place if all scriptures to be fulfilled, has its place in the scriptures. So I quote the heading of our series again. I say, you see your calling, brethren? And if you can say, yes, I do, what a blessed people we are. And if you say, I'm not quite sure about it, say, well, the scripture says, he that seeketh, findeth, ask, seek, knock. That's from another part of scripture, but it's still true. You see, God treats us, not as automatons. You see, you go up in the door and you say, oh, the door's like that. We say, have you put your thumb on the latch to see if it's open? No, I never thought of that. Oh, I see, you're going to stick there for all, all the time. He's put that there to see just how far you are in earnest, for he's in earnest. So may the Lord grant unto us that we may see this calling, rejoice in it, And seek the grace that is necessary to walk worthy of it for his name's sake.